0: How good it is to hear a multitude of the saints praising the Lord for the gospel. Amen? It's good stuff, man. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your incredible, redeeming work. Accomplished through your Son, by your Spirit, applying the benefits of Christ's work to our lives causing us to come to new life through the proclamation of the gospel repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus, gifts given to you, given to us by you and we thank you Lord because your gospel has transformed everything about us and we're living in some place on that spectrum of transformation Lord if we are Christians we are being conformed to the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to the next Lord maybe some of us though are stuck somewhere in the middle there And we pray that the series on the gospel would remind us of the power that we have to conquer sin because it's canceled sin, Lord. To remind those who have walked into this place and just completely lost, Lord, don't know you, that there is, you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you through the work of your son on our behalf. And that is extended to any and all who would turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus. Father, I recognize that for your plan being as glorious and as great as it is, it comes through a broken human messenger and that delights you. That through the folly of what is preached to some, through a broken messenger, you put on display the message to the people all into which the angels longed to look. We're a part of something profoundly special today. And we're asking again, Lord, that as the word is proclaimed, your spirit would move and power to take the truths articulated in your word and cause them to be implanted deep into human hearts such that they would not leave the same that they came in this morning. God, we know that we can't do that. I can't do that. You have to do it, and we pray that you would, that you would be pleased and delighted to use your word again, Lord. And so for that, we're expectant. We give you all the praise and the glory that you're due. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Let me encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's word today as I come out of Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. We're going to read down to verse 23 today. Romans 8, 18 to 23, one of many, many places we will be today in the word of God. Romans 8, 18 to 23. Paul writes and says, This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good to be together again as always. Thank God that the Lord's day is every week. Amen? The Lord's Day The Lord's word and the Lord's house with the Lord's people, I need it. I need it in my life, and I trust you guys do too. My name's Scott. I'm the lead pastor here at Doxa Church. It's a great joy to have you with us. As always, we will be getting into God's word. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you just grab it and be ready to, like, turn to all the places. Okay. Normally, we're anchored in one text, um, but for the next four weeks, we are starting a new series, and it starts today. And the new series is called "The Gospel Is." You probably want to know why we would do the series in the first place. Some of you are even wondering, "Man, we don't need this series. We hear the gospel every single <laughs> week in this church, right?" But then, what happens? You're asked, someone puts you on the spot and says, Hey, can you tell me what the gospel is? And you're like, Hubba, 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 Crash and Burn, Crickets. Or somebody's like, Yeah, 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 no, no, the gospel. Yeah, there's four of them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Which one of the gospels do you want to talk about? Or someone will go, Yeah, man, I I dig that kind of music. Gospel? That's my vibe. That's where I live. So yeah, We want to talk about the gospel. I can tell which record you want to talk about. Or we could go into it a little bit more in depth and say, hey, um, brother, sister in Christ, you're struggling in some area of your life. Do you know how to apply the gospel to that area of your life? And you look at people and they're just like almost kind of glazed over like, I have no idea how to do what you're talking about. The reason we're doing this series is because something that becomes so repetitive because it is so central can become assumed. It can become assumed that we know the gospel. And the problem with assuming anything is that assumption leads to ambiguity if it's not clear over time. What do I mean by ambiguity? I mean all of a sudden because the gospel is so clear clear, and so often articulated that you assume you know it, and then when it comes to telling it, you're not sure what actually to include, what it actually means, and therefore it gets into this kind of ambiguous, I'll add this and maybe not add this, and say this and not that, and so assumption leads to ambiguity, and ambiguity, if we're not careful, leads to alteration. If we're not sure what it means, then we make it mean whatever we want to mean, whatever we want the gospel to mean, we make it mean that. And it leads us subject to every evangelical fad, every new book that someone's coming up to the pastor, you gotta read this, this is the thing. Or you gotta look at this, this is a gospel issue. And if we're not careful and we don't know the gospel, we will be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of the next new evangelical trend that says, I have solved it. I have cornered the market Now I understand all the problems that are wrong with the Christian church and here's that book written by some dude not named Paul or Peter or, you know, one of these dudes, okay? That becomes the situation. And so God help us. I don't want to make it more than four weeks. Why? Because if you make it 12 weeks, you lose the essential component of what I'm trying to get to you. I want you to understand the gospel, So we're going to do it in four weeks. What are we going to cover? We're going to cover the gospel big picture. In other words, it's bigger than just your story. And then we're going to cover the gospel as it pertains to salvation, how someone gets saved from their sin unto Christ reconciled to God. And then we're going to talk about how the gospel transforms us so that the person we were when we met Jesus is not the person we're becoming by God's grace and certainly not the one we'll be. And then we're going to talk about the glorious future that's held out to us. In other words, we're going to talk about the gospel from a big picture perspective and then our salvation story. That you were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Assume you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today... The title of the message is The Gospel is God's Story. The Gospel is God's Story. You and I need to start by getting a proper scope of the Gospel. Before we get into the trees, we got to see the forest, we got to zoom out with a wide angle lens we got to take a 30,000-foot view approach to see first and foremost about the gospel that it is not primarily about you. The gospel is primarily about God. i got to get you to see this, that your story is wrapped up into a much bigger story, a story of God's grander plan to, in the words of Paul in Ephesians 1, to unite all things in him. That's what God's doing in the gospel. He's uniting all things in Him, in heaven and on earth, all the stuff. And so, simply put, often our gospel is too small. When you and I talk about the gospel, it merely lays on the ground level. It never gets up into the air. We have to do both. We have to have the gospel understood on the ground level, how we get it to another human being, another individual. But we need to first and foremost see it in the air for all of its glory. That yes, our gospel is about salvation from sin through faith in Christ. Yes, that's true. But your salvation, your personal salvation, is a microcosm of cosmic implications that are baked into the cake of the gospel. One, one theologian said it like this, Herman Bavinck said, "God, the, here's, what, here's what the big picture looks like, that God the Father has reconciled his created but fallen, here's the word, world, bigger than us. He's reconciled his created but fallen world through the death of his son and renews it into a kingdom of God by his spirit. End quote. So I mean we're wrapped up in something much bigger than ourselves. In one sense, you could say that the gospel, broadly speaking, is the overarching meta-narrative of the scriptures from creation in the book of Genesis to new creation in the book of Revelation crescendoing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is God's story. And I know we love stories because um, I know how much we'll pay to go to the movies. That stuff's expensive. Okay, the chairs are bomb these days, so that's a good thing, right? I mean, they kicked kicked it up a notch with the chairs, but still, I'm like, man, that's steep. You know, you take a girl on a date these days, Chipotle in a movie, it's like 60 bucks now. That's intense, and Chipotle is like mediocre, bro. Right? That's not like classy, that's like, but that's, that's pricey. But we'll go because we want to see a story, and we'll read books with people because we love stories, and we'll... We'll write stories ourselves because we just have this innate desire to love and be a part of and think of stories. Some of us will sell all that we have and we'll shove everything that we own into a Toyota Corolla and we'll zip across the country and move to New York or L.A. so we can try to act in someone else's story. We are a people that are committed to, involved in, invested in, love stories. And here's the reality. If you're a living, breathing human being, you are a part of God's story. The big question is what part you're playing in that story. And how you relate to the story's creator. You know those movies when um, it starts and you're like immediately without any cognizant recognition of anything else it just gets intense action right away you're like you're open up and someone's legs bleeding out and they're like we got a problem and everything's like coming together and all this and you're taking it all in and it's like an action scene right at the beginning and then it takes that and a few minutes later it goes six months earlier and everything's calm and like you get them build up to the story you know what i'm saying That's kind of like our lives, right? When we get old enough to recognize that we've been placed in this world, it's like we're trying to make sense of what's going on. And we're living in that kind of intro scene of a movie where you and I, with no help from the outside, are kind of taking it all in going, I I know I'm here. I have this sense of existence and awareness. I I I don't know exactly where I've come from or what got me to this place or what's wrong with what I see in the world or is there anything wrong. All this stuff's being put together and what's so interesting about... Our story is that it's kind of like that. You're plopped into God's story at this point in God's story, and it needs a context to have your life be rightly understood as it plays out right now. And when we understand God's story in the gospel from the big picture perspective, it answers the deep philosophical and spiritual questions that everybody has, okay, And so this is what we're going to cover today. Where are we in the story? And more importantly, we're going to go back to the six months earlier shot, and we're going to get a panorama of the entire thing. So here's the big idea. God's story has four major movements. God's story has four major movements. If you're going to answer the question, what is the gospel today? The gospel in the air from the 30,000-foot view is this. Creation, fall, redemption, Consummation. What's the gospel in the air? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's the big story of the gospel. Creation, where did everything come from? Fall, what has gone wrong? Redemption, what is the solution? Consummation, what does the future hold? So let's talk. You get plopped into this world, you grow in an understanding of what's going on, you know, you read some books, and you go to school, and you get a sense for a history, and where you've come from, and other people have come before you, and there's goods, and there's bads, and there's all kinds of things going on, but we need to kind of scroll all the way back, we need to go all the way back to the beginning, and that, in order to do that, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the book, in the book of Genesis, and as The opening credits are being rolled back in the book of Genesis and the opening scene reveals in the Bible this all-powerful God who reveals himself as the creator. Stamps himself as the creator that out of nothing, by his word and at his word, Everything that is has been made. God is the creator of everything. Everything you see and everything you don't see, that is God's made. And as the creator, he has the right to define. So he can, he's the one that gets to call the shots. When you build a little world out of Legos, you can make it whatever you want it to be, okay? When he makes everything, he gets the right to define it. So he says, light. I'm going to call you day, because he's the creator. He goes, darkness, I'm going to call you night. He goes, men, I'm going to call you man. And woman, I'm going to call you woman. There's a distinction that you don't get to weigh in on, because you're not the creator, God is. Okay? And and he has the right to judge his own creation. Like, he kind of takes a step back, and multiple times goes, dang, this is good. Like, God loves what he made. He sees it as glorious. He he sees the goodness in creation. In fact, every aspect of creation from the creator God radiates the goodness of God. Every river, every color, every flavor. I love doing that with my kids, too. Ice cream day is a day to talk about the glory of God. (laughs) You know, 31 flavors, and I'm like, kids, and there's more than 31, but that's just where they stop. There's so many more. Every flavor radiating the goodness of God, every animal, every mountain, every Valley, all signposts pointing beyond themselves to the glory of God. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm 19 that the heavens don't declare the glory of themselves with the glory of God. They weren't ever meant to culminate on themselves. We weren't ever meant to enjoy creation and then end on creation. Man, that meal was good. Steak is awesome. I should worship that. It was never meant to happen. But it was like, man, steak is good. The giver of that steak is the one that's deserving of worship. God was a creator having created good things not for their glory but his own in such a way that John Calvin, another theologian, said it like this. God's insignia is on wherever we cast our gaze wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory, And quote. This is the world that God made. And at the pinnacle of that good and glorious creation, God made man in his own image. Male and female, he created them and gave them this amazing task of image-bearing. This kind of priestly, kingly role. The creation in particular, Eden, but it was designed that creation would have this vibe as they took dominion and exercised God's wise stewardship to the world. But starting in Eden, Eden being kind of a temple, a sort of cosmic temple, a a heaven and earth reality, and the stage where image bearers Made out of the dust ourselves, so part of earth, and yet reflecting the life of heaven as God's vice regents exercise dominion to God's glory. That was our role. In other words, maybe it'd be simple to say that God created us to worship and to work. As we worship, we get a sense of who God is. And as we get a sense of who God is, it funnels through us to exercise wise stewardship to the world he gave us to have dominion over. So we were from the very beginning meant to be a royal priesthood. The mediators of God's good, wise stewardship to the world and then reflecting the praises of creation back to the creator This was our goal. This was Adam's responsibility. Adam and Eve being the first two image bearers created, called to steward creation well, not as servants of creation. If they went that route, that would be something called idolatry. They couldn't be servants of creation. They had to steward creation being servants of God. And if they would do that, the result would be shalom, which is this Hebrew word that means peace, but more than that, It was this idea of universal flourishing, this idea of delight, wholeness. If they were to function in this way, they would have life the way it truly ought to be. Loving their creator and being God's vice regents, God's workers in his world to bring his wise stewardship into the world that we inhabit. But correct me if I'm wrong, it it isn't that pretty right now. Like that beautiful picture of shalom, this universal flourishing. You see that in the world? Consummate delight, wholeness, everything the way it should be. No, we don't see that. This isn't the world that you and I live in. It's not for sure the one we read about. It's definitely not the one we see on the cable news networks. This is very, very different what we're in today. Something has happened to God's good world. It doesn't take away from the fact that this is how it started, but it is to say wherever we find ourselves in the story, it doesn't look like the shalom that was expected when God created everything that is. So that leads us to the second component of the gospel. Yes, it starts with a good creator, all of his creation displaying the goodness of God meant to drive glory to him and praise and adoration. His image bears, reflecting the glory of creation and worship back to him, understanding who God is and acting in his wise stewardship to work and have dominion over the world God's created. But then we have the fall, something's gone wrong. And, and we have these themes everywhere, right? There isn't a book you can read where or, or a series of books you read Especially in like the fantasy realm, where you don't have some instance of a separation and then a coming back together, of an exile and then a return, you see it all over the place. You see it in kid movies. You see it constantly, and that's because it's our story. Because you only get two chapters in the whole Bible that fit the first category of the gospel, the first major movement before shalom is fractured in Genesis chapter 3. Two chapters. That's it. Nice work. We did a good job. Impressive. The word fall there that I'm using refers to Adam and Eve in their rebelliousness. They rejected God's rule. Remember I said that if they acted as good stewards of creation, not servants of creation, but servants of God, things would go well. But if they decided to reject the worship of God and worship and serve some other things, everything would be fractured. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Adam and Eve rejected God's rule over them and we call that the fall. Why? Because it implies we have descended from something. Or it's probably better to say we've descended from someone. And as such, sin creates separation and exile. You get the account of the temptation in Genesis 3, basically verses 1 to 7, did God really say, twisting the word of God, knowing that you will be like God, knowing good and evil, they decide to listen to the voice of the enemy and give in to wanting to be like God themselves, even doubting God's goodness. By the time Genesis 3 is over, in verse 24, they are exiled. What sin does is it separates. There's a fall, there's a descent, and there's an exile. And by verse 24, it says, he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They were blocked from returning to this good Eden. Eden. And so you and I enter into this picture, enter into this world, and we see things in creation, and while creation retains traces of its original beauty, here's the truth, it it bears the groaning of the consequences of sin. In other words, we're in the first point of the major movement There weren't things that went wrong, now there are things that go wrong and go awry, and we can see it even in the world that we live in, and we deeply sense it in our world. I sense it every single time I drive by a dead animal on the road. There's something in me that knows that's not supposed to be the way it is. We read about it every time there's a school shooting at yet another place. We understand there's something wrong with the world because we know about the natural disasters that have taken place time and time and time again. We understand, if we're honest, that the effects of sin aren't just out there in the world, but they're right here inside of us. And if we're honest, we recognize the effect of sin in every snide comment you make, every expression of your grumbling heart, and every last one of your self-centered motives which has littered your life from the beginning. If we're honest. Can we be honest at church? Because I for sure don't care if it's like, oh, he's being honest, I don't like this place. No problem with me. We gotta get the truth, if we're gonna get the gospel. Pain and suffering and death are far too familiar companions in life. Because Adam sinned, he was our human representative, we are all born in sin. We have sinned in Adam, so we come out of the shoots sinners. We don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's how it works. And we've entered into a sin-cursed world, and yet the most difficult part for us is that God has instilled something where we're, we still have the echoes of Eden in us somewhere and we're haunted by it. Like, no one has to tell you that something that goes wrong isn't how it should be. Why? God has written that on you. He has written eternity into our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that we are haunted by Eden in a way of saying, wait a minute, this isn't how it should be, and so you and I, we work to fix things because we see that something's not right. And so we go for younger. Right? You don't want to get older. We want to see younger and newer and cleaner. And here's the problem. You get that new thing, and it's never getting newer. Okay? You get that new car, and it's never getting less dense. It's never getting less scratches. It's always getting more. You're like, man, my house is so... We just did the laundry. And somehow, that thing, within two days, gets filled into such a monster, I'm carrying it down the stairs, trying to like hold it. I mean, it's, you guys have that? No? We just shove it all in there, and I'm shoving it down. And I'm like, how? And I don't even have to do the laundry. Praise be to God. (laughs) Though I would if we wanted to share that privilege Oh, my goodness. God bless Aaron for the amount of laundry. Is there, there's, it, it's always more. It, it's not like, oh, you cleaned your shirt. Well, we're good, right? The problem is there's always more cleaning. Something's always getting older. It's never, th- then you go, okay, well, forget that. That's not working, right? That's not working. I'm, it, it, stuff's broken, okay? Then that's not the way I'm going to fix everything. I'm going to fix it by being an activist, I'm going down to the capital today. It's going to be a good cause too. It's going to be—I um, don't know—inequality. Uh, yeah, let's do that one. It's going to be inequality, or 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 uh, some sort of injustice, or 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 cancel culture, or or something like that. But here, here's the thing: at the end of the day, you can fight for the rest of your life, and there will always be more evil to fight. Do you ever notice that? It never ends. It's a, you're going to get out there and this will be the time where evil finally comes to an end. Everybody has had a person that has said that at one time or another and it has not happened. And so you go, well, forget all of that. That's all a waste. Then I'm just going to go after my own happiness. It's just going to be me and doing what I want to do and hanging out. Every desire I want, I'm going to fulfill it. And here's the problem. Sin has led us to be content to settle. So we settle everywhere we settle for temporary and fleeting instead of eternal and so satisfying (laughs) and the place we go to fill our need for happiness is found in other broken places that cannot do for you what you expect them to do for you it's like two half-filled glasses leaking that you're hoping to use to pour into your cup so that you'll be fulfilled. Meanwhile, they're completely drained, cannot sustain you because you're leaking out no matter how much you put into your cup. This is the broken world we live in and so you can exhaust yourself with pleasure You can have that kind of solomonic life. He was like I did it all. I had all the pleasures I even kept my wits about me So my wisdom was maintained while I indulged in all these pleasures and You know what I found at the end of the day all of that was worthless It was all meaningless no try as we might if we admit it we have fallen and we can't get up or as Paul says in Romans 3:23 all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God Which is kind of a kind of a classic Christian verse right We say it we've memorized it do do we even know what it's saying We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It, it means that sin is for sure at least error that we've committed, wrong that we've done. Miley Cyrus, nobody's per- she even knows about sin a little bit. you know. Nobody's perfect, we live and we learn it. She, she's got that sense in her song even of like, hey, something's wrong. But is that what Paul's talking about when he says we've fallen short of the glory of God? Falling short, sin is missing the mark. And when he talks about falling short of the glory of God, you're the pinnacle of God's glory in creation. Sin really, at the end of the day, is missing the mark of, of human, genuine humanness, genuine image bearer that we have missed the mark through our failure of worship, turning away from the living God, And instead of worshiping him and working for him, we have given ourselves over to idols and now we worship and serve something in the creation instead of the creator and that leads to slavery, whereas worship of God unto his work is freedom. And so we find ourselves enslaved to sin and the ultimate rule of that enslavement is expressed in death, which is the wage of sin. And so we see it in every single life because every single person dies. Sin is missing the mark of genuine humanness. So in a sense, sin has three different components to it. Sin is cosmic treason against God because it's you asserting your lordship. I know better, I'm the Lord, you're not the Lord. It is cosmic treason against God. But sin is also corruption As his stewards, as God's stewards, submitting themselves to worship and serve the created things instead of the Creator leads to corruption and destruction and brokenness. And we can see that even in the passage we read in Romans 8 that there is a destruction that has taken place. There are the consequences of sin spreading to the world that explain the earthquakes and the floods and the. storms that we faced that have been deadly. And it's alienating to others as well. So we have then separated ourselves from one another. Our sin makes us entirely selfish. And so human relationships end up being like, two opposite sides of a magnet. Have you ever tried to shove two flip two magnets and shove them together? That's what sin is like. That's why it's so hard to maintain relationship in the church because at the very core of who we are, though in Christ we have been forgiven of sin and in Christ sin has been canceled on our behalf such that we have power over sin. It doesn't mean that sin has been eradicated altogether, not yet. And as a result, we battle one another. And again, all of that is to say we, um, apart from the Lord, have this understanding that sin is something out there. That sin is something that is, um, you see it and it's around me. And, and it's because we see the cosmic, even social, far-reaching effects of sin. But it's because of our sinfulness that we think it's out there instead of recognizing that it's in here. That the reason everything is as bad as it is and experiences the consequence of the fall is because of what is in here in us. While sin is in here, the solution isn't. In our sin, we get it backwards. I love how Al Mohler said this. He says, it's not that we have an alien problem and must find an inner solution. He says it's that we have an inner problem and we need an alien righteousness. That's good. And so it leads us to how are we going to solve this issue? Clearly something has gone wrong. Clearly its effects are social. Its effects are cosmic. This sin is against God and it's against others. How does this possibly get resolved? So many efforts all falling short. How are we to get out of this mess? It leads us to the third question. Redemption. Third movement of God's gospel. How does it start? Creation. The way God designed things. The fall. How did things get bad like they are? And then redemption is how do we, how do we get out of this mess? What is the solution? I, I was on a date with Aaron, and we walked into Barnes & Noble uh, in the mall, or not in the mall, but across from the mall. You know what I'm talking about? No? Okay, cool. There's a Barnes & Noble across um, from the mall. Uh, you guys don't read, except the Bible, right? Um, and, and literally, you can't, even, there's a double door if, you, if you've been into Barnes and & Noble, and you couldn't look to the right or the left without there being gospel proclamation on the redemption category. I took pictures of it because it was crazy. Two categories. One side, whole stack of books before you even get into the main bookstore called divine guidance. Other side called maybe this will help. And it had anything, literally, under divine guidance with all these books, it said the world of self-transformation, they're getting at redemption, they're trying to find it, it's right in your Barnes and Noble. You walked right by the world's gospel. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then on this other side, you're like, hey, if you want to just get this religious hawk out of the way and you want to go this way, how about this book about how awesome you are? Because in the end of the day, if I can just convince you you're awesome, if you if you can pound that drum and get yourself convinced of that enough, then you'll be set free. Maybe that will help. If not, try tarot cards or palm readings or on and on and on. It went. People are desperately searching, and here's how the Bible talks about the problem being solved. Are you ready? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Not impressed? That is God's master plan to not only rescue sinners, but to redeem his world and to restore everything that our sin has broken. I need you to get these words, because this is huge, and I've been talking about this even in the last week's series. Gospel proclamation often starts with Genesis, who God is, then we get to the fall, what's happened, and then we fast forward all the way to Jesus. That much. Like Forget that part. Uh, When Paul says, uh, Christ died for our sins, he meant in accordance with the scriptures. See it? That big chunk. It's not like you go, we don't need that, let's just get to Jesus. Uh, No, he died for our sins in accordance with the (laughs) scriptures. That chunk. Why is that important? Because the gospel is God's whole story. That's why. When he says Christ died for our sins, it's that simple, and yet when he says in accordance with the Scriptures, he's talking about it's the whole story. In in, in other words, the gospel of Christ dying for our sins and rising for our salvation finds its right meaning and fulfillment only when it's understood in accordance with the Scriptures. Every development in the Old Testament is a recapitulation of of and an attempted undoing of the problem that happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, as well as a progressive unfolding of God's saving plan coming together. Truly, if you were to understand God's rescue plan, you wouldn't go from Genesis three, one to seven all the way to Jesus, because the rescue plan of God starts in Genesis chapter three, verse 15 where we see one of Eve's descendants is going to be one who puts their heel into the skull of the enemy. That one through her line would come. And then again, in Genesis chapter 12, you have Abraham, and God calls Abraham and gives him this promise that through Abraham's seed, the world is going to be blessed through him. And then you have the Old Testament playing out which is the story of God's people, Abraham's seed, Israel advancing the story of redemption who were supposed to be the ones who would bring redemption really by being that light in the world that would display. This is what it looks like when God rules. That it would be so compelling that the nations would see what was happening in Israel. And the story develops, right, where they get the law which is that means by which the Israelites would establish and maintain that right relationship with God that they had by sheer grace as God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and through the Red Sea to the land. He had already done the work, and then he brings the law to say, here's how we're going to maintain this relationship with one another. He establishes the priesthood and the temple. Interesting, because that's exactly what was happening in Genesis 1 and 2, and in the temple you have a mini kind of Eden reestablished the place where heaven and earth would meet, and priests functioning as mediators between God and man. And you had the sacrificial system because you had to have something to do with sin now that sin was in the world. The problem with Israel is that the redeemers were ones in need of redeeming, that the very law that was given to them to maintain the relationship with God was the means that exposed the fact that they were sinners. And the sacrifices that they were exercising to be forgiven of their sins were not sufficient. And they knew, which is why they kept doing it over and over and over and over and over again. And then they would establish kings for themselves because maybe that was the way we'll be delivered out of our problems, right? Go the political route. Go the activist route. Have a king. No king brought in lasting peace. You had a few moments where you're like, I think we did it. And then it crashed and burned again. And you see this pattern in the Old Testament. God blesses. It's always God first blessing. People rebelling. Exile is the result. And God in his grace brings them back. That in the Old Testament... You have again and again and again. The Old Testament, when you read it's almost frustrating to read because it's a story in search of an ending. You want it to stop because it just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? When you read the kings and stuff, you're like, really, another sucky king? Are you kidding me right now? Again, again, again. Then it like perks up a little bit because they give you a little bit longer story of like a slightly better king. You're like, oh, that was good. Oh, and then he crashes and burns because he's totally prideful at the end. And on and on and on and on we go. It's like Groundhog's Day. Have you ever seen that movie? It's like every day you get up, same thing. When is it going to change? When is it going to be different? Enter Jesus Christ at the fullness of time. The one who is truly God and truly man. The one who undoes the curse of Adam in the garden. The one who is the seed of Abraham through whom the promised blessing to save the world would come through him Enter the Israel's representative who succeeded where Israel failed in his obedience to God. Enter the king who inaugurates his kingdom declaring in every work the undoing of sin and its effects. He didn't just calm the storm. He said, I'm sovereign over the storm. He didn't just keep people from, or, or allow people to see again. He said, in the kingdom, the effects of sin aren't exi- don't exist. And he proved it time and time and time Again. As priest, he offered a better sacrifice of himself to reconcile sinners like you and me, and more than that, to reconcile, according to Colossians 1, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The cross that Jesus Christ died on is a cross with cosmic implications, a cross so profoundly powerful because it was the place upon which the Son of God died for us, that it covers the brokenness between man and God and heaven and earth. So when we preach the gospel to people, we say that the cross upon which Jesus died, namely Jesus himself being our substitutionary sacrifice, is the only way to God. And yet from the air, we say that the cross is the way to restoration of all things and our pathway to a new and better Eden established by the Lord himself. The cross is not merely your personal salvation story. You partake of that salvation story by responding to the gospel that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried for you. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. But that cross-bearing sacrifice reconciled all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So listen, we are all part of this story. But there are two ends to the story. Because the last part is the consummation. What does the future hold? There are two components to the story. Where do you fall in the story? Because the king is coming again. The kingdom has been inaugurated but not consummated. When you think of the word consummation, think about the fullness of everything God's promised in full fruition, How do you take part in what God is redeeming through the cosmic implications of his son's death on the cross? How do you take part of that? Can I just be really, really clear? To be sure on what the future holds, and that it is good for you, you respond by faith to Jesus. If you want to take part, you are in God's story. You are going to live eternally. You're going to die physically, but you're going to live eternally. Some to everlasting judgment, and others to everlasting life. And the distinguishing part between the two is what you do with Jesus who died on that cross to reconcile all things in himself, whether on earth or in heaven, will it be your life as well? And that to, to take hold of that is to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus and evidence that faith in getting into the waters of baptism. No, you're not saved through baptism, but you're saved through water, just like the Israelites weren't saved through the, by the Red Sea, but they were definitely saved through the Red Sea. You, you can't be like, hey, I'm a Christian today. Um, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Have you been baptized? No then I have no evidence you have faith whatsoever. Why? Because the first expression of faith in the life of a Christian is baptism. Because you've confessed Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And if he is your Lord, then you bow to him. And so faith exercises itself in obedience to God. That's what's changed about you. You were living your life in disobedience to God, coming out of the shoots as a sinner. You turn from your sin, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Both of those things, repentance and faith, a gift of God's grace through the Holy Spirit's work. You come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, and the way we see your faith in action is you get into that water and get baptized. So it's a really hard thing to say, I follow Jesus, but I've not been baptized. Because God's covenant people have come through water. It's always been the way it's been. And in that place, we talk about the future. What does that hold you either repent of your sin and trust in Jesus and eternal life is secure for you or you resist the good news about Jesus and you will have eternal destruction waiting. Those are the two sides. Why? Because your sin is a cosmic offense ag- against God. you sinned against an eternal creator. You will have an eternal punishment. That's the simplicity of it. It's not pretty. A lot of churches don't like preaching it, but it's the truth and makes Jesus so much more glorious. But then watch this. Because remember I said there's echoes of Eden inside of us. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, the fact that deep down we feel that the world has gone wrong indicates that we were created for a world that is right. He says, the fact that I can conceive of paradise leads to me thinking there probably is one. The story doesn't end with redemption. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom, but he hasn't consummated it yet. He has assured it because he is resurrected from the dead, which is his raising. It's his rulership being displayed. Then evidencing himself in that raising on the ascension level, ascending to the right hand of the Father, and he will come again. But until then, we, you and I, what do we do? We are agents of reconciliation, transformed ones going out into the world, redeemed redeemers, reconciled reconcilers. That's who we are. We are a people who bear the marks of the new life of the gospel in us. I mean, we should whiff of the gospel. We should be different than the world. We should have a different hope. I was thinking about this. You ever been to Benihana's before? I When when you're done with Benihana, speaking of laundry, you gotta like, You've you got to go take a shower after Benihana's. But when someone else smells Benihana's on you, you're like, dang, that smells good. Because you just have to get immersed into it for a little bit, taste of the glories, and you whiff of it the rest of the day. That, that's exactly what we should be doing as Christians. That we taste of the glories of Jesus and we better be whiffing of it all day long. Except the glories of Jesus, you never want to take a shower to wash off. This is our goal, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is our job, redeemed redeemers, reconciled reconcilers that go into the world because Jesus Christ will return to judge sin and evil. Jesus Christ will eradicate it once and for all, and Jesus Christ will usher in shalom. And the ultimate goal is not Tom and Jerry heaven, it's not disembodied bliss, it's not that we go to heaven. The real goal is that heaven comes to us. Heaven's not the win. Heaven coming to us is the win. Heaven is the win in the time period between our death and Jesus Christ's return because we get to go to be with Jesus instantly into his presence, praise God. But we're not floating around without bodies and saying that's the ultimate consummation of all things. The final goal, the ultimate end end, the answer to the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is two things. We will have resurrected bodies, and we will be on a new heaven and new earth. That's the goal. (laughs) That God in Christ is remaking his children to take dominion over the restored creation and fit us for earth-covering glory. On a new earth, Wherein creation has its own exodus, renewed but not brand new. Renewed but not brand new. God will renew and restore the earth to a glory that's never been seen before, a level of glorification. So it's that creation's own exodus will be tainted with no evil, lack no good, and afford us all the leisure of the praises of God. This is the kind of gospel we have to start with. This is the gospel to scale that we need. Listen, if your story is just about you and Jesus, you will, ha- you will sputter along the way. You need to recognize that your story is caught up in the bigger story of what God is doing to reconcile all things in himself, whether on earth or on heaven. And you are a part of that story and a part of that glorious redemption future where everything is made right. And we get to enjoy God increasingly forever for all those who, for the free gift of God's grace, through repentance and faith, put their trust in Jesus. That's the gospel in the air. And to commemorate that gospel, we're going to take communion today, which is a memory meal, but it's more than that. It is a meeting meal. It's more than just a memory. It's a meeting. The benefits of Christ's work delivered to us by the Spirit in the taking of The bread and the cup, strengthening our faith, delivering to our souls assurance. And so we examine ourselves, especially within divisions in the body, examining your own heart. But we come as Christians to the table. This is the goal. We we come intentionally. We don't want to keep Christians from the table. If you are a Christian, you are to come to the table. Yes, examine yourself confess sin to a brother or sister that you need to confess sin to if there's irreconcilable differences at this point or if there's some noticeable area that you need to own before the Lord but you come to the table you aren't stopped from the table this is God reminding us again we come and you are forgiven fully and completely because of Jesus and so we're going to reflect on that we're going to take and then we're going to sing